Harry Percival has completed his second book, Architecture Patterns with Python. So of course we talk about the book, also known as Cosmic Python, but we also discuss lots of other testing topics, especially related to larger systems and systems involving third-party interfaces and APIs. Here was actually the very first guest that I had on the podcast back in episode 9, and it was super cool to have him back for episode 102. Thank you, Oxylabs, for sponsoring this episode. Oxylabs, a top provider of innovative services, including real-time crawler, web scraper, and residential and data center proxies, trusted by more than 500 companies. Find out what they can do for you at oxylabs.io slash testingcode. Welcome to Testing Code, a podcast about software development, software testing, and Python. Welcome to Testing Code. I am really excited to have Harry Percival on again. Harry has been, he was, I, I should have looked this up, but you were like one of the, like the first or second or third guest I had on the show. So way back in the day, you were, um, I was excited to have you on because you had just have a, a TDD book that was out. <laughs> what a coincidence! <laughs> yeah, but since then, there's a lot of been a lot of change in your life and work, right? You're doing a lot of different things. Yeah. Do you want to reintroduce yourself? Who, who Harry is today? Great. Well, thank you for having me on for the second time, Brian. I'm really flattered. So, if we spoke a little while ago, around the time of my uh, what I'm now calling my first book, ha ha ha, might have been 2015 or something. So maybe it's maybe it's been five years. I don't know. And so at the time, I was working at Python Anywhere, which is a, a platform as a service for hosting Python stuff. And that's where I really learned about TDD. So that was the topic of my first book. And they were doing extreme programming and really rigorous TDD, pair programming, everything. And the first book was really about trying to just share that with the world. And I kind of wrote this book almost as like pair programming with the audience and doing, look, here's TDD. Here's how you do it if you've never heard of it. And I think at the time, when I first started writing that book in like 2013, Testing was the exception. You know, people were talking about testing like as this good idea, but uh, I don't know what you're like. It's a good idea, like flossing your teeth. You know, something like, well, yeah, I really should do that, and then maybe you don't quite get around to it. I, was, I realize I'm talking to Americans here who all do systematically floss their teeth every day, so that was a bad example. But <laughs> right, but you know, like good intentions is where where we were in the testing world. But a lot of people were like in 2013 were saying, oh, you know, I don't have time for it, or like you don't really need it. And we've really seen the world of Python, I think, evolve. So testing being the default assumption, you know, we're doing testing because that's how you write software properly. And if you don't, you're in the exception case. I think that's been a real change in mindset. And I think it's a, it's a mark of kind of the maturity of the Python world. And as we, we all sort of evolve as a community, we come along to this second thing, which is what I'm talking about in the new book, which is that, you know, a lot of people are working in Python. We've been doing it now, you know, five years, 10 years, 15 years. And a lot of things that were just initially a little Python script or a quick Django web app or a little thing we've thrown together for a startup are really evolving into like bigger and bigger applications. You know, people work for Dropbox, they work for Instagram, they work for Google, they work for these things that were like thrown together in weeks and then suddenly like three, four, five years down the line are like really serious business applications. And the, the challenges you have are not the same as the challenges that you have when you're a startup. And like managing a large code base is a different kettle of fish. And that's why I think we're seeing like interest in the typing module not that i'm an unreserved fan of the typing module that is still an, 
a controversial topic with me and with the world. These questions of how do I manage a larger code base over time are the questions that I've started to, to run into and that, that I'm trying to talk about in, in the new book. I think that's an awesome topic. It was just a, a recent episode was uh, equated uh, working in an existing code base to um, walking in in the middle of a chess game. Mm-hmm. It definitely is different challenges uh, for a large large code base. You can't. One of the biggest things is uh, to me is you can't keep the whole thing in your head at once. Mm-hmm. And nobody remembers all the decisions that were made in the past. Mm-hmm. So sure. interesting. So what's the name of your new book while we have it out? So well, we brought it up already. Yeah. So, you know, the, the old book, I really wanted to call it Obey the Testing Goat. And then, you know, the O'Reilly said, well, that's a bit too wacky, Harry. You have to call it something sensible. And we called <laughs> it oh, Test Driven Development with Python. Fine. This new book, we really wanted to call it Cosmic Python. Cosmic Python. And uh, Riley said, well, okay, that's a little too wacky. Come on, let's call it something sensible. And we we called it Architecture Patterns with Python. We narrowly avoided them forcing us to call it Enterprise Architecture Patterns with Python. We we convinced people that Enterprise would would lose us as many readers as it would buy us. Oh, totally. Um, I would not read something that had Enterprise in the title. And I I don't think it's it's correct either. But so here we are, Architecture Patterns with Python, a.k.a. Cosmic Python. Cosmic. I like Cosmic. I'll tell you why. And this is a little joke of Bob's. He talked me around to it. Bob is my co-author. We'll talk about him more. But Bob said, oh, I want to call it Cosmic Python because cosmos is the opposite of chaos, you see. You can look it up. There's a quote by Carl Sagan. But in theory, in the ancient Greek, cosmos means order. And chaos is the opposite of order. Oh. So cosmic Python is like Python code with order or how to avoid chaos in your Python application. That's the kind of tagline. Oh, that's cool. Uh, what's Bob's last name? Bob, Bob Gregory. Okay. Yeah, so you can find our stuff at cosmicpython.com, and that's got a link to stuff about the book, as always. It's going to be like freely published online. You can already preview it there via the GitHub ASCII doc source rendering. Okay. Cosmic Python. That's my new jam. That's the new thing I'm pushing. That's the new brand name. This concludes the sponsored episode. Uh, thank you for <laughs> joining the show. <laughs> No, I'm I'm excited to read it. Any idea when it's uh when I can start reading it? When is it coming out? Well, you can read it now if you like. Uh, uh, you know, everything is online and 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 viewable on GitHub. You can ask me nicely. I'll send you a PDF if you want, but uh, don't tell everyone. <laughs> and it comes out in uh, formally in April. We've got a sort of April 9th or something release date. So we're hoping to have it just in time for PyCon. Nice. And at the same time as we launch the kind of paid for print edition, we'll be launching the like free online edition. So it'll be Creative Commons licensed. As always, and people can read now, it online. As well. You did that with um, the free online sort of thing where you can read it online. You did that with the first book too, right? Yeah. Was that something you came up with or was that something that O'Reilly had done already? They had done it before. I was pushing for it. So at the time, I was an activist with a, a political party in the UK called the Pirate Party who were big agitators for like copyright reform. And, uh, and that's a bit more dominant these days. But I think still, I believe that that's the way to go. If you're trying to publish things in the modern modern media, you know, your choice is not between having your choice is not between having your book available for free and having it only available for paid. Your choice is between having your book available for money and having it available for free, but it's pirate copies versus having it available for free and you are happy for them to be free. Yeah. And it, it doesn't actually reduce or increase the amount of people who read it for free just because you authorize or do not authorize the free copies. So that's and, it. I don't know. The other thing is like we live in an open source world, right? We benefit so much from people donating their time for free for Python, for Django, for all of these projects that we use. People and it, it's I think it's a similar sort of thing. Like, you know, this book is not my book, it's mine and Bob's book, but even then, like it, these are not all our ideas and the language that we're using is not our language. And so it's our way of giving back and saying, look, 
This is our knowledge. We want to share it with everyone. If you're happy to pay for it, then we love that. And O'Reilly loves that. And if you just can't afford it or you just want to sample it first, of course, have it for free. And like it gets you around export bans, right? If people in countries that have some kind of argument with the US uh, can't read physical books are published by US publishers, but they can sure go online. So, and there's people who are just way too like, you know, this book is going to cost $40 or something. And, you know, that's fine for you and me. And it's fine for people who are pay, like highly paid software engineers in the Western world. But there's like kids and students out in other countries can't be talking about $40, right? Even if you try and drop the local pricing, forget it. So, yeah, of course, everyone should, should have access to it for free. That's my opinion. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I'd like to see more that just becoming the norm. Anyway, cool. I don't want to put down anyone who doesn't do that. Like who says, you know, I'd rather have mine paid. I think that's a totally valid stance. This is, yeah, this is just the way I see it for me. Yeah. Well, like mine's totally paid. I'd like to look into the options of doing something more along the lines of your model in the future. Because I have lots more books in me. Some publishers are more skeptical than others. Yeah. Right. That'd yeah. be all. So some publishers are more skeptical than others about it. So I did talk to other people before O'Reilly and they're like, what? Give it away for free? You're mad. And Okay, we'll forget you guys. But O'Reilly, you're good and forward thinking about it. And then also uh, working with a uh, co-author versus working by yourself. Was that a bigger, quite a difference? Yeah, it was. It worked out really well. I'm kind of used to... The secret with this book is it's, it's not really my book. It's Bob's book. I just made him write it. You know? <laughs> so it's, I cannot pretend... There's an engineering blog somewhere that has seven stages of knowledge of a topic, you know, from from like heard about it through to like apprentice, through to like novice, through to journeyman, through to master. And like, I am like basically an expert beginner in this topic. And I think I know a lot more than I know. And I know that I know very little. And so Bob is the person who actually has the experience and has done this stuff for 10 years. And so I just like made him like write it all down in a book. And as a result, asked all the right questions and learned some of it along the way. Why am I interviewing then you then? Why should I should interview Bob instead? No. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And I could just <laughs> hang up now and get him on. He's also much funnier than I am. Thank you to Oxylabs for sponsoring this episode. Oxylabs is a top provider of innovative web data gathering services, such as real-time crawler, web scraper, and residential and data center proxies. Oxylabs is now introducing their next-generation residential proxies, which are a significantly improved data-gathering solution. They provide a stable and fast proxy pool with more than 30 million global IP addresses, and they are resource-efficient, with the proxy management, user agents, and IP rotation all done on the Oxylabs side. Oxylabs has a deep understanding and knowledge of how to acquire web data, and they provide a dedicated account manager for every client. Already trusted by more than 500 companies, visit oxylabs.io slash testingcode to find out more about their services and to apply for a free trial of their next generation residential proxies. That's oxylabs.io slash testingcode. I did want to talk to you about a few more things. (laughs) Is test-driven development, does that come up in your book at all? The new one? It is, yeah. We eventually put it in the time title. We said like it, the, the architectural patterns are about enabling TDD. They're about enabling TDD and DDD, if you've come across that, domain-driven design. And we're going to talk about like event-driven microservices, which is kind of a, a second half of the book topic. But yeah, absolutely. One, one of the things that got me really excited about these architectural patterns, and we're talking about things like ports and adapters and clean architecture and onion architecture, and all this stuff that's, you know, people in dynamic, you know, dependency injection, these are all things that people in dynamic languages are quite skeptical of, with good reason. 
And so I came along and I saw all this stuff that Bob is doing and with like, you know, dependency injection and classes for this and blah, blah, blah. I was like, ah, oh, this is nuts. And then, you know, 18 different levels of indirection before you can do anything. I'm like, what is this all about? And then what I really saw the effect on was in TDD and was in the test pyramid. You know, I just moved from a world where we're looking at a lot of tests with mocks, a lot of complicated unit tests, a lot of like Django tests that end up using the database and they're like, eh, fast enough, but eh, maybe they're kind of slow. And a lot of like a uh, ratio between your kind of end-to-end and acceptance and slow tests and your fast unit tests was not very good. And I actually saw a world where you have a test pyramid, like where genuinely the ratio between end-to-end slow tests and fast unit tests is like an order of magnitude or two. And so you can really have a world where your applications, when you just run your tests, and in a few seconds, all of your tests run, and then the kind of acceptance and end-to-end tests are just a little validation that you've wired things up correctly. And it's a whole different world to a world in which like you're waiting for builds to run overnight, or you're like, okay, there it goes on Jenkins, better give it 40 minutes. So it's a different world, but is it better? Well, yeah, I mean, like it's, it's all about feedback cycles, isn't it? If you can get the feedback cycle over whether your code is correct faster, then you just you develop faster and it's more of a pleasure. And that, that whole thing of like having to wait a long time for like your build to like a, a slow, flaky build to tell you that something is broken. Well, maybe. I mean, it might just be flaky. If you can minimize that and instead maximize the amount of time that you run just actual unit tests that say, yep, okay, that's all your edge cases are covered. That is all your business logic is great. Like everything is the way it should be. And like you occasionally make a mistake and miswire some config variable. So yeah, okay, the API is broken. But okay, so that, that's the one thing that you do like once a month and you find out from a, a slow test, then great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people enthuse about the test pyramid and seeing it in real life. Right, okay. And the way you achieve it, you know, this I'm not saying like the, the ways that we've done it are the only ways of doing it, but when you get there, it's wonderful. And it's the ways that I've seen it work, yeah. Wow, this sounds magical. I'm still very skeptical. <laughs> but I think that's right. And, and, and I was skeptical too. And I, I like, you know, it's a very much like TDD when I was, when I was being taught it by Giles and the gang at Python anywhere and I would, I would drag my feet at every single thing I'd be like what are we writing like end-to-end tests as well as unit tests isn't that duplication I'm like what you're going to rerun the tests in between writing every single little line of code and like what you're going to write a test for like a one-line function this is mad and they were like yeah yeah Harry come on you'll see and then like you know over time and with experience you see how it all works hmm. and it was similar here going ah oh, what's all this dependency exchange what is this like you know commands and mappers and cqrs like can't we just use django and like, no 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 and as you like over time you see like all of these things that seem mad at first you sort of learn the justifications for them and then they make sense either that brian or it's just stockholm syndrome i can't tell you judge it for yourself okay there's also it works in my in my realm but it might not work in somebody else's domain there's definitely a thing here which is and we're kind of at pains to talk about this in, in the book and when we're about like every single one of these things comes with a trade-off there's a rich hickey quote which says you know you've heard the saying brian like uh, you know economists know the price of everything and the value of nothing have you ever heard that saying i think so yeah there's, there's a set of one of the counterpart in programmers is programmers know the benefits of everything and the trade-offs of nothing like we're all very quick to go, hey, this is better. And like it's, you know, someone's just a little too slow to go like, okay, it is better in the following aspects, but it also costs you the following things. And it, it's when we do things like throw in dependency injection or like a, a decoupling IO from your model or blah, blah, blah. Every single time, like you're adding layers of indirection, it does cost you something. And we're at pains to say, okay, look, you are paying a cost here. You're paying a cost here. You're paying a cost here. And like, so when is it worth it? And I think it's worth it when you have a complex application. So like when we, 
prefix this conversation, like over the five years, like a little startup that just needs to get some, basically a thin wrapper around a database in front of as many people as possible on the internet. Yeah, great. Like Django is your friend. You're going to save a lot of time. Go for it. But when you have an actual complex domain, like a business that has a workflow and rules and edge cases and complicated concepts that have to interplay with each other and different teams of developers and different teams within the business that speak different languages, then and only then does it start becoming worth it to go, okay, well, like, you know, maybe some of the shortcuts and time savers that, that we get from like frameworks and Django and Python magic are more like breaks. And if we add these levels of indirection, if we apply these slightly counterintuitive patterns, you know, by putting a little bit more work in here, we make this thing over here more manageable and easier to deal with over time. Well, I, I will reserve judgment and, and read more about it first. The, the fear I have is there's a couple fold. One is um, the complex systems are sometimes complex because of the software we put in place to avoid complexity. Yeah, and like we're at pains to try and make it opposite of that okay so that like you actually like surfacing the logic and putting it all in one place where you can see it and you can unit test it and like that is the logic here and it's got nothing to do with your database and it's got nothing to do with your web framework and it's got nothing to do with some like api for Django rest framework or forms or or like some clever flask thing or, or like some plugin to do with oauth no the business logic is here it has no dependencies it's just python yeah that's a great place to focus on your business logic tests and stuff if you're not mm-hmm. if your code doesn't have a bunch of non-business logic in it. So that's great. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. I'll take off my skeptic hat. The other part that's amusing to me or I guess just an observation is that I think this was Fred Brooks. I can't remember. I'm probably massacring this though. Somebody said uh that software architecture often mimics the hierarchy of the company. Conway's law I think is Is the, that Conway? But yeah, okay. exactly. Like the software systems end up reflecting the organizations that they serve. Absolutely. Yeah, that's for good or bad. Partly that comes about because individual teams need to have control over the software that they're writing. But that sometimes isn't the right way to slice an onion, you know? You got to be careful with that. But actually, more people talking about it and more opinions and more books out there is good because I actually, I, I don't think we haven't really talked about this a lot large scale systems in Python in very many books that I'm aware of. I am an anti-test pyramid person, but I know that a lot of people love it out there. And it may just be my domain. I don't know how to write a unit test and tie the test criteria to the requirements of an application. Yeah, I know how to unit test a little thing, but a unit test often is making sure that the code runs as the developer expects the code to run. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That is different than making sure the code runs as it needs to to fulfill the requirements of the system. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think um, it's, we had, I had a similar thing, um, like I, I was complaining earlier about like builds that take forever. We used to work at Python Anywhere, and Python Anywhere is a, a like host, it's a, it's a platform as a service, right? So that, that whole domain, like that whole business is about building a web application that transforms like those keystrokes and stuff they do in a browser into input and output to processes running on a cluster, a distributed cluster of services with like containerization and shared file systems and, and complicated things like that. So it's, it's like it's all about trying to turn one set of boundaries and edges and UI input things into another set of like permanent storage slash processes slash boundaries. And so that, you know, like it was very hard at Python anyway to see how you would make a 
pure ethereal domain out of that because the whole thing was about piping and so yeah like the right kinds of tests are going to be they're going to be integration tests and so like this really this book is really aimed at people who have a domain like is there a thing here that you need to model conceptually yeah. because at python anyway we don't need to really conceptually model a unix process right we just you know like here it is we just wire up that unix process to like keystrokes from the browser but if you did you know so it's, it's a thing where like, is there a conceptual model here? Is there a thing where you have like different kind of objects and relationships between them and permissions and rules and interactions and groupings and like invariance and, you know, kind of constraints that you want to apply to them? But then if you have that, then this is where this stuff pays. You on. brought up mocks a little bit. So does, um, does thinking about the architecture more allow you to write cleaner tests without as many mocks? Or to use mocks differently? Or how do mocks relate to this? So in the book, we sort of pretty much don't use mocks at all. And um, we kind of have a talk and I have maybe something like a blog post about, about testing REST APIs. It's all about, okay, well, you know, we often reach for mocks as a default tool because they're nice and quick and convenient. They sometimes come with a cost, which is that, you know, you have these tests where like every single test in your test file has four or five mocks, even the ones that don't care. And, you know, when you, when you look at your, you know, asserts and set up, you do the mock that this, mock that that, set the return value, and then you have your test under code, and then you check, uh, you know, this mock was called with that, and that mock was called with this, and this one had this method called. And, you know, it ends up being quite hard to reason about what those tests are doing. That's the pitfall. And so, yeah, the thing that we propose in the book is, like, once you start decomposing, once you start, like, working on this architecture where you say, I want to I separate out my business logic, the stuff that's, like, pure conceptual, and I have that as just pure conceptual, well, if that is all just pure Python objects, then you can test that completely without mocks because it's just Python classes talking to one another. And so you do a bunch of setup with some, some Python objects and classes and you make some assertions about some Python objects and classes. So that can just be a completely dependency-free, mock-free world. And then the other side of things, you basically want to test with, with integration and end-to-end tests. And then, you know, halfway between those two things, we discuss in the book the idea of like, okay, well, if you want to start kind of building ways of plugging your sort of ethereal domain into the real world. One way is to, you know, like, and you want to keep that thing free of dependencies, keep that domain like independent from your database. You, you have to do this kind of inversion of the dependency. You have to say, okay, well, instead of having my business model objects inheriting from a Django.models class so that they map one-to-one -one with a database table or from a SQL Alchemy table object, right? If you do that, then your model depends on your ORM. It depends on the database. If you want to go backwards to that and say, instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask my database to look at my model and design tables that match the model. And when I'm going to ask my database for rows, and I'm going to get those rows, and I'm going to transform them into model objects, invert that dependency and make the database depend on the model rather than the model depend on the database. Once you do that, you get into this sort of story of things like inverting the dependency sometimes leads to dependency injection. And it often leads to you thinking about your, your infrastructure as like, okay, well, what is the idea of a database? A database is like, a, what's an abstraction that I can build around that to represent the idea of fetching stuff from my database? Well, I might have a class that can either get things or list things, add things to the database. Great. And that's going to be my interface between the, the domain, the, the, the model, and the database. It's going to be this layer that says get, list, add. And when you do that, it's really easy. Like, I can make a, a mock that does get, list, add, and it's a very simple mock rather than, like, mocking a Django session or a SQL Alchemy session. But I can also build a fake version of a database adapter in sort of six or seven lines of code. And so the, the general the thing that we're pushing there is if you if instead of using mocks, 
you force yourself to identify what your external dependencies are. You build a little wrapper for them. So it's okay, well, like for my database, I need things that can like get and add and list. And for my, I don't know, SMS notifications, I need a thing that can like send a notification as a string. And for my file system, I think need a thing that can like list files and read a file of a given name. Then I can have that abstraction of a file system, and then I can build an implementation of that that is going to use a real file system. I can build an implementation of that that uses S3 as a file system. I can build an implementation that uses Dropbox, and I can build an implementation that's just in memory for my tests. If I decide on an abstraction for something, then it's much easier to make a really simple fake one for your tests and make a real one that touches the real world without needing to, you know, without using mocks. By deliberately not using mocks, kind of forces you to keep those things simple as. I've said a lot of things in a, in, a, in, a, in a few minutes there. So like, no, I like it. Pack it. These are just generally good ideas for external dependencies anyway, is mm-hmm. to put an adapter layer or something in the middle, an interface layer that minimizes the width of the interface. So mm-hmm. exactly, if you only need access to three methods in an interface, then hide yeah. the rest of them so yes. that you can't yeah. even call them. Precisely. And so like one of the things I'm going to push as a, one of the things I suggest people try, if you have an interface and it has like, you know, 10 million options, but you only need three of them, if you just reach for mocks, then you can mock out any of the 10 million ones of those things in that interface for your actual code. And then when you do one more, you just add one more mock and you do one more, you do add one more mock. And then when you decide that you've used the wrong one and actually a slightly different version of the API that you depend on would be a neater way of getting the thing that you want, you need to go back and change 350 mocks that mocked out one specific part of your dependent API and change it to have a different. And so as you say, that's the danger when you go directly to an interface and you say, well, let's build a, an adapter that minimizes that surface. Yeah. That's great. And then the adapter gives you that decoupling. If you say, I'm not allowed to use mocks, Right. Well, then having that adapter being something you can swap a real adapter and a fake adapter and having to actually build your own fake adapter that's a fake version of the, the real adapter like forces you to keep it simple because it's really annoying to maintain a fake adapter that has loads and loads of methods on it. So it's like it, it exerts pressure on your abstractions of your dependencies to try and keep them simple. Yes. It also allows you the, like the lean software goals of being able to decide late. If you have a, a small interface that you have to go through to get access to your database and you decide three quarters of the way through your project that MySQL is not just not right and you want to switch to Postgres or something else, you have one place in the software, you have to change that adapter and test the heck out of that. And that's it. The rest of, you, rest of your system should be fine. Exactly. I mean, that's the theory exactly. at it's least. A, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I like our ORMs already buy you a little bit of that. Like, like Django, in theory, should make it relatively easy to switch from MySQL to Postgres. Oh, that's true. The bits that are hard in practice are the same bits that are hard in practice if you build your own interfaces. Maybe the better analogy would be switching. And now Django's, I'm not a Django expert, so I'm not sure if this is even possible, but switching to a Mongo or something, a, a document yeah. database. Or yeah, you'd have to completely probably swap a it. little bit harder. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. In the book, we talk about you know we build an app and it has a database and blah blah blah, and then just for fun in an appendix, let's say, you know what? Like, let's say we got this far in the project, and the the business are like, you know, we've just decided that we're going to like give you some spreadsheets, and we'd like you to output spreadsheets instead. And so you're like, ah! And I've built this whole thing around the assumption that I'm like reading and writing to a database, but because we've built this nice abstraction around like permanent storage, switching uh, a SQL Alchemy repository to being a csv repository it's just a matter of rewriting one file and all the domain logic is completely separate oh that's cool like, nice. swap the database for raw csv files and it's 
pleasingly straightforward. So now both you and I are talking as if we're the same language, but it is different than the language that a lot of people speak with mocks. And what I'm specifically saying is I've got the assumption, it sounds like you do too, that the only thing really worth mocking or faking is external dependencies, mm-hmm. something outside mm-hmm. of your code. Now, that mm-hmm. isn't the entire story in the world of testing. There is, especially, I don't know if it's prevalent in Python, but it is prevalent in the Ruby community and some in the C++ world to just kind of mock everything. Yeah. Even if it's my code, but it's not the code I'm working on today, yeah. I'll mock the dependencies of a function. That is not something you do normally, right? Yeah. No, it is not. I'm a little worried I'm going to get my concepts backwards here, but I think this is the kind of London school versus classic or Detroit school of TDD. So the London school says, you know, define what all your different classes and collaborators are going to be and then test each one in isolation and you mock out the collaborators and you test each unit with mocks and test them all separately. And that's the London school, the wrong ones. The wrong ones. uh, (laughs) It's not at all the wrong ones, right? Because obviously there's loads of really, really smart people who have written some software like this, right? But there's the other side of it, which is the, the kind of classicist school, which says, no, okay, like just try and set up your state before run your assertions and look at the state afterwards, which is the way that's more instinctive. And, and what I would say, yeah, like, so we've gone down this path, or I've gone down in my career, this path of, of the kind of classic school, and I figured out ways of making that work. I have not seen the London school work. And that's not because it doesn't, it's just because I haven't seen it. So I right. can't talk about it. Yeah, that. and it also fits better. So I've talked with people about the mocking or faking external dependencies. I always try to bring up the third option is to just include that in your architecture. You can design an architecture that has like a a option that stubs out some external system. Like for instance, an email notification system. You can design into it that instead of actually emailing somebody, any email that goes out just gets logged to a file or something Mm -hmm. or thrown into a a directory or stuck in some permanent memory somewhere or anything, and be able to retrieve it later. Yes, that is mostly for the purposes of testing, but it's really handy to be able to even turn those options on for, even for, like if you're doing user interface testing or something like that, to be able to just speed these things up to sort of turn off external systems, but still have the, the behavior of the system right. That can just be part of your architecture. I think I think you're not a skeptic at all, Brian. You're already a convert. You don't just don't realize it. Like, yeah. <laughs> this isn't unit testing. This is just this is even for system level testing it makes it faster, right? Totally. I wish more people talked about that. Let's actually bring up the one while we're on this topic. I got a email question recently or I don't know, over Twitter or something, saying specifically if my code is depending on a REST API from somewhere, mm. how do I deal with that? How do I mock that? Yeah. And how do you do it, Brian? Because like, you've already given a hint of your answer to this. I don't, really. Uh, this isn't something I've had to do. Okay, fair. But my first thoughts would be, I like the idea of a recorded system. So taking a snapshot of, uh, of some live data that would come off of that API and somehow serving it to my yeah. system without having to actually talk to it. There's a tool out there called vcr.py. I'm not, I'm not necessarily advocating for it, but it's quite smart. Like you can run all your tests with no mocks or anything like that, and it goes out and calls to the real APIs that you depend on. And then as you're running your tests, it records all of the outgoing and incoming HTTP calls. 
the first time you run it. And then the second time you run it, it just replays what it says before. So whenever it sees the same request, it gives the same response back. And so it like sort of freezes that thing in time and just replays the same responses forever until you decide to like flush your sort of uh, like pre-recorded responses and get new ones. So it's pre-recorded. That's why the cute name VCR.py. I've played with that a bit and I found like people in my team, like it can get very confusing because you're never quite sure what's talking to what. And it's the algorithms for saying what is the same request as last time are not always straightforward. So VCR.py is great at saying, oh, okay, here's a request I've seen before. Let me send back the same response as before. Well, what if every request has a uniquely generated randomized ID in it? Oh, okay, now I have to make a special thing that matches requests that says, okay, well, ignore this field because that's a randomized ID. Although, actually, the test is going to send out three of them. So I need to somehow notice this one is the first, this one is the second, this one is the third, and like pretty soon you're in, uh, in, in some complexity. So I would say to people, check it out, but be aware that things are not always that simple. And then I can answer your question, yeah, about saying, like, so how would you test it? I think you, when you were saying, well, why not design into your system the idea that you can have email notifications and the real one sends email, and then for testing, I can have a version that just you know, saves those emails to memory somewhere. That's where I would kind of go. And the, the, the other part that, that you answered is saying, well, if I have a dependency, what I would like to do is build a little adapter, build some sort of wrapper around that dependency that has a very simple API and says, like, in terms of my client code, what do I need from this external API? And I'm just going to define that interface. And then I'll have the real one that talks to the real API. And for my unit tests, I can have a fake one that just works in memory. So like maybe a more concrete example would be, oh, I don't know. I want to say like some sort of payments, right? Like you have a, a payment provider and you want, to, you want to do some sort of thing that says, okay, well, when someone signs up, I'm going to go check with the payment provider whether I actually already have an outstanding payment from this person. And I also then, you know, maybe need to initiate a new one. And the credit card provider has like 250 different methods in their API that you could use, but you actually only want to use, you only want to do two things. I mean, they're all named in weird, complicated language that that credit card provider likes, you know, like it's PayPal or it's Stripe or something. And they have their terminology for like transactions versus payments versus cards versus payment methods versus blah, blah, blah. And you don't care about any of that in your app. You just want to say, check if they exist already and set up a new account, right? So you're going to build a little interface that just has two methods. Check if something exists already that takes, I don't know, a string representing a user ID or a username or something, and then set up a new account that takes like a dollar amount, whatever. So that's what I would do is I'd build a little interface that just wraps that API. I'm going to build a fake version of that interface that maybe like I can set up to say return true or false for does it exist already? And I can set it up to return okay or not okay for like, did I set up a new payment correctly? And I can build a really nice little fake without using mocks, just a little in-memory class that pretends to be that API. It's usually, these fakes are usually like a, a wrapper around a list or a wrapper around a dict. So you know when you fetch things into, you put things into it, you take things out of it. And then for the real one, I'm going to have an end-to-end test at some point that checks that you really can talk to that third-party API. And so like hopefully they have a nice sandbox. I'm going to have maybe a couple of integration tests but just test my real adapter and say, okay, well, if I check, is there an existing payment? It should say no. If I then set up a payment, it should say, okay. And if I check again, is there an existing payment? It should now say yes. And this is talking to the real API with a real real set of data. So that's where I'm going to have integration tests for my little handle adapter. So one integration, so one end-to-end test, a handful of integration tests, as many as you need. 
And then all your unit tests can just use your fake and you can have as many of them. I think that's great. For instance, like if you there's some, the integration tests that are talking actually to either the live system or a, like a test server, like for instance, yeah, a lot of these service providers do provide a test service, but they're not intending all of your developers to run it a, a thousand times a day. It's intended to maybe maybe run it at night or maybe just run it when you change your code or when you get notified exactly. that there are changes to the interface. So, yeah. yeah. So that's absolutely, that's a common challence, right? And, and so we, there was a real contrast in the quality. Like when uh, a third-party provider gives you, like first of all, you're lucky if they do give you a test sandbox where you can mess about in it. And then you're really lucky if they give you a good one where it's really easy to set up test data and to clip, especially to clean up test data. So I've seen things where we're like, hey, can we use a sandbox? And they're like, sure. And they're like, okay, so we're going to run our tests in it again. And they're like, yeah, great, that's great. And you go, okay, so I have like five developers and they're going to be running the test like 10, 20 times a day. And each test like generates, I don't know, two, 300 entries. So by the end of the month, we'll probably about have 20, 25,000 entries in your database. So how do we clean it up? And they go, oh, okay. And so, you know, maybe it's not sustainable. And in those cases, you can actually like, so just in the same way that you built a fake version of your interface for your unit tests, you might actually consider building a fake version of the third-party dependency for your integration tests, for the tests that like every day, like so once you've set up your credit card payments thing, right, do you need every single time you run your suite of integration tests, do you need to really run that against the real third-party credit card provider? Yeah, probably like, not. How often do they really change their API? And like, especially like if that is a small aspect of your code that is not really central to your life, Right? Like your code is not about credit card payments. Like they're important, so you want to check them every so often, but you do not need to check them 35 times a day. Then build a fake. We have a little bit of fun like writing like a, write a one-page, one-file Flask application that just pretends to be your credit card payment provider. And it just emulates the endpoints that they would provide, and you put it in a little Docker container, and it runs like when you run your tests and your sort of integration tests, integration test environment, it's one of the little Docker containers you can't. It's called fake credit card provider. And your app is configured to talk to that. And it sends those HTTP requests to a sort of port on localhost instead of a port on the public internet. Brilliant. You're great. Love it. And then you so, so then you set up, okay, you're fine. So that's great. And then what we'll do is we'll just be a bit smart and like once a month, we'll run the tests against the actual thing. Or if we ever spot that we've made a change to code that's near payments, like in the accounts module, then any pull request that has a change to that accounts module, we're going to run against the real API or, you know, whatever it'll be. And you give yourself the option of running the real thing or the fake thing. Yeah, actually doing risk-benefit analysis on your tests as well as, you know, yeah. the rest of your life. So that's good. Yeah, because, yeah, well, I was through a lot of pain of just debugging PayPal specifically, curse them. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm calling them out. There you go. I did it. Fine. Sue me. But, like, yeah, just debugging like PayPal thing, like their, their test sandbox. This was years ago. Maybe it's better now. Yeah. Like they were really flaky, and it wouldn't clean up, and the tests were slow, and they would fake. And like, and we like for you know the man hours that we would spend, person hours that we would spend debugging PayPal test failures, and they had never changed anything, and we had never made a mistake. It was always just a test being flaky. And you know, at some point, you just have to go, well, "This is not working." Yeah, and also just minimizing like that sort of stuff. If if it is a complicated interface that you're interacting with isolating that code from the rest of your code is good anyway. Just anything that talks to PayPal or anything that talks to Stripe or anything like that, just isolating that in like a little tiny piece of your software that really, unless something changes, you don't have to change it. And when I call it, when I make a thing called 
my uh, payment provider interface, which has its two method on it. And I set it up to talk to PayPal. And then after like six weeks, I'm really angry with PayPal. Then I change payment provider interface. Instead of talking to PayPal, I talk to Stripe. And none of the rest of my code needs to know the difference. Yeah, yeah, that's good. <laughs> I got a funny story about that, but I, I don't think I'll share it right now. <laughs> well, we're going to get sued today. Uh, so, well, this has been a blast. Talk. I could talk to, to you about testing and stuff for hours, but we probably should wrap it up. If people want to know about more about you, are you still at the same place or where should they go to find out more? Yeah, so we're like, yeah, come and check out cosmicpython.com. So free pictures of random nebulae in there, as you might expect. So cosmicpython.com, link to the book. There's a link to some old, excellent blog posts by Bob on the ports and adapters architecture. So see that. And uh, yeah, I hope to give a talk at PyCon this year about mocks provisionally entitled stop using mocks <laughs> cool <laughs> so nice uh, yeah just so thank you so much for having me on brian it's an absolute pleasure talking to you it's yeah. nice to see you on the camera yeah and, it's good. Uh, i hope to, I hope to see you again in real life and uh, thanks to everybody that's out there listening sorry if i uh, spoke too fast or was annoyingly english accented and uh, give us a shout out on the internet if you've enjoyed it yeah thanks or especially if you haven't enjoyed it and you think this is all nonsense and like i should stfu then yeah, tell us. I'm HJWP on Twitter. Like, tell me all about it. I want to hear. Yep. It. And if you have any like aggressively different opinions or aggressively the same opinions, come on the show and let's talk about it. So, be good. Right. Like, let's have the DHS test-induced design damage. Maybe that's what this is all about. Yeah. Let's have that conversation. Uh, all right. Well, thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Harry. That was a really fun episode. I look forward to reading your new book and seeing you at PyCon. Thank you to Patreon supporters for continuing to support the show. Join them by going to testingcode.com support. Thank you to Oxylabs for sponsoring this episode. Find out what they can do for you by going to oxylabs.io slash testandcode. That link is also in the show notes at testingcode.com 102. That's all for now. Now go out and test something.